0: Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for joining today. We are going to be talking about ethics in New Jersey workers' compensation cases. And before you go and you say, wait a second, ethics, please, Greg, no, don't do that. Uh, I'm going to make this interesting and I'm going to make this fun because I'm going to talk about how ethics specifically applies when we are evaluating and challenging claimants' cases, what ethical duties uh, petitioners' attorneys have, and I'm gonna talk about ethics from the context of the defense. So stick with me, uh, I promise we'll try to make this as uh, applicable and useful as possible. All right, uh, my goals today are talk a little bit about where the ethics rules come from, which rules apply, understand the issues for Petitioner's Council, and then, of course, the issues that we face as Respondents' counsel. Now, this is totally live, uh, so please, I see we do have a good number of attendees today, Please type your questions into the box. I will answer your questions at the end, and I'm always happy to answer questions about things that are not exactly on this topic. So you can bring those as well. So where do ethics rules come from? Well, they come from the rules of professional conduct, uh, which apply to all attorneys in all cases throughout the state of New Jersey, but there also are specific administrative code provisions in the New Jersey workers' compensation law that apply in, uh, to workers' compensation plaintiff's counsel and defense counsel. There's also some ethics opinions from the New York, uh, sorry, from the New Jersey Supreme Court Advisory Committee, uh, that are applicable. And these are where you see the opinions changing over time, right? And the rules of professional conduct don't change, but the opinions can change over time to address stuff that have developed. So, What have we seen develop in the last 20 years? Well, the attorney's use of uh, group emails, use of electronic filing systems, that kind of stuff. But what do we expect to be uh, the subject of a lot of new ethics opinions and a lot of new ethical issues for attorneys um, in the future? What do I expect to see develop over the next two years, let's say? Well, the answer is I do expect there to be a lot of new ethics opinions on the use of artificial intelligence large language learning models, things like chat GPT-4, applied to things like legal brief writing, right? If you saw what's happened between GPT-3.0 and GPT-4.0, man, the new version is so much more effective at writing uh, like a lawyer would write. It's gotten much more effective. Here at Lois Law Firm, we're starting to look at ways that we can deploy these large language learning models internally. To do things like summarize records, to summarize a transcript, to summarize a large group of medical records and come up with, uh, for example, something like a cover letter or a description of those medicals. That's some real cutting edge stuff that we're just starting to deploy now. Well, the ethics opinions are going to have to catch up with that and the use of artificial intelligence in aiding the attorney or the paraprofessional in doing some of that summarization and some of that drafting. In New York, for example, my firm uh, defense cases that have been brought by the plaintiff firm, which became kind of famous for using ChatGPT 4.0 to write, sorry, 3.0 to write one of their legal briefs, where it turned out that ChatGPT 3.0 was just coming up with fake cases and fake citations. So you already have ethics opinions uh, in New York talking about the use of artificial intelligence or at least large language learning models in writing things like Legal briefs, We're going to expect some of that to come out and affect us in New Jersey as well in the future. Okay. So uh, that is stuff that is subject to change. So let's talk about ethical issues affecting petitioners' attorneys. Well the first ethical issues are how do they become involved in a workers' compensation case, right? Interestingly, they are um, representing the petitioner as soon as they file the claim petition. There doesn't have to be any other type of retainer or agreement between petitioners' attorneys and their clients when they step into a representation. So just the filing of the claim petition itself is enough to establish that relationship and have that relationship be respected by the workers' compensation courts. However, that's not a great practice if you are a plaintiff's attorney You should be executing at least a letter of understanding between you and your client, setting forth the likely fee structure and who's responsible for what. Now, the fee structure, of course, in a workers' compensation case, all uh, petitioners' attorneys' fees must be set by the judge and the judge alone, and those fees cannot exceed statutory limits. And currently, the statutory limit is 20% of the overall award. So that has to be set forth or described to the petitioner client the only way of a for a attorney to um, effectively terminate representation is to do a formal substitution out an attorney can also move to withdraw uh, but in general the judge of compensation is going to have to approve that move to withdraw and and um, you know uh, sign a judicial order stating so but judges really don't like to do that because they do not like to let a petitioner become self-represented or become pro se represented. They prefer for a petitioner's attorney to represent them. It just makes the administration of the workers' compensation case so much simpler. Um, Client contact. The number one violation of ethics and ethical duties and rules of professional conduct for petitioner's counsel in New Jersey is failing to communicate consistently with their own client. The rules of professional conduct require the petitioner be kept, quote, reasonably informed about the progress of their case. And what that means, and there's ethics opinions that talk about that, what that means is they have to be provided with enough information so that they can participate in the decision-making going on in their own case. Uh, and what that really comes down to typically is things like settlement advice, settlement recommendations, settlement offers and demands need to be discussed with the petitioner in a workers' compensation case. Now, this is one of those issues where I like to raise this or challenge my adversaries with it. There are so many times when I've been talking to opposing counsel and they'll say things like, Greg, uh, you just made this settlement offer to me, but it is so low, I'm not even going to bring it to my client. And I'll turn around to them and say, well, that's cute, but Rules of Professional Conduct 4.1 says you actually have to bring that to your client. You can't just say I'm going to reject it out of hand, it's too low. So go talk to your client and then come back to me. And that's something that we have to educate petitioners' counsel on quite frequently. Now, there are also um, thoughts that we need to turn to about the kinds of communication that petitioners' attorneys are often having with the employers in workers' compensation cases. Oftentimes, they'll communicate directly with the employer, sometimes before they file the suit and say, hello, I represent so-and-so. He works for you. Can I get a copy of, for example, uh, the, the accident information or the first report of injury or the safety report or something like that? Um, And they can do that. Uh, They are allowed to have pre-litigation contact with the employer. Of course, the employer is going to be on high alert when they get a phone call from an attorney that says, hi, I'm looking into this potential lawsuit against you in in the workers' compensation context. And also, the attorney has an ethical duty not to disclose or breach their own client's confidence. So they're not allowed to, for example, turn over uh, 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 personal medical information or other confidential information to the employer. So although pre-litigation contact is allowed under the rules, it's really quite limited in this jurisdiction. Um, Now, other interesting things. Um, Where the employer denies that they have notice of the claim, but the carrier has already been provided notice of that claim, that can create an ethical issue. And we also see cases where the employer uh, alleges things such as, I didn't know this person had a workers' compensation claim. And then the courts will will typically find that notice or knowledge is imputed to the employer where the carrier has been placed on notice or has received a claim. And the reverse is possible as well. The carrier who disclaims notice or says, hey, there was not proper um, notice given of this accident. But meanwhile, the employers are aware of the accident or has already been served with papers Uh, we also cannot ethically dispute that that we are aware of the claim. Now, the big challenge I see is Rule of Professional Conduct 4.2. Once we have filed an answer on behalf of the respondent or the carrier, the uh, petitioner's counsel can no longer directly correspond with the employer, and they have to cease all that communication. Do they always do it? Not always, and particularly not in the self-insured context, and we have to remind them, about their ethical duties. Uh, next, what about petitioners contact with physicians and experts? In general, the, um, the uh, petitioner's attorney um, is allowed to provide them with, you know medical records, up-to-date notices and information. However, uh, that typically does not occur. Typically, the physician's office, which again is going to be authorized and provided by the respondent, is going to provide the medical records to the employer uh, or the employer's representative, that typically would be a third-party administrator or us, the defense counsel, and then we will serve it upon petitioner's counsel. Now, the one time that the petitioner's attorney is going to directly communicate with physicians is when they are securing their own uh, permanency evaluations, typically with the impartial or uh, independent medical evaluator that they are selecting. Now, remember in New Jersey that these doctors are neither impartial nor independent because they are being selected, and uh, by the party that's going to proffer their evidence, and also because uh, we're going to be quite selective about who we're choosing based on our prior experience with those physicians. Um, however, it is ethically uh, disallowed for petitioners' counsel to communicate with our defense expert. So... Uh, they should not be sending them hypothetical letters, communicating with them, or even asking them things like, could you provide us with a copy of your resume? That should all be provided through the Respondent's counsel. Conflicts of interest do arise for Petitioner's counsel. I see them arise in two contexts. First, uh, that they've previously represented the employer. For example, perhaps they were previously in another life Respondent's counsel. The second context I see, and this is going to be hugely problematic, is where they represent medical providers and medical provider claims um, in New Jersey, which, as we all know, has become a cottage industry in the last 10 years in New Jersey. Well, it is ethically improper for them to represent the petitioner in a case and then also someone who's allegedly suing the petitioner uh, for unpaid medical bills or demanding additional reimbursement. So. You will not see in this jurisdiction typically attorneys representing both the petitioners and the medical providers in the same action. Uh, petitioners counsel are required to be truthful to both the judge and all adversaries, um, even though a lot of what happens in New Jersey workers' compensation courts proceeds informally. In any formal proceeding, the uh, workers' compensation petitioner's attorney cannot mislead or conceal anything from the court. Um, And that is, uh, they can also cannot request that anyone in their office or even the petitioner themselves do anything uh, that would either conceal a relevant fact, mislead the court, or misstate a fact. So the place where we see this um, rule or this ethical um, structure be violated most typically is where the attorney is not seeking themselves to have the petitioner to do something unethical, but someone in their office um, is coaching or advising the petitioner to do something uh, which is unethical, typically a concealment or under the guise of preparing them for testimony actually prepares them to perjure themselves. Uh, And this rule of the rule of candor 3.3 also states or has been interpreted so that anyone who works in an attorney's office is also subject to this rule, which means that just like I can't um, coach one of my witnesses to perjure themselves, I also can't have someone who works in my office, for example, my paraprofessional, coach someone to perjure themselves, right? That's the same violation as if I did it myself, okay? So those are the ethical rules that apply specifically to petitioner's counsel. Now, let's talk about the fun ethical issues for respondents' attorneys. Well, the first one, That I'm going to talk about. It's not really an ethical issue. It's just a a state of the fact, which is that oftentimes uh, as a defense counsel, I am actually representing two clients at the same time. Uh, This occurs in the insured context, the context where the employer that I represent, the respondent in the workers' compensation case, has an insurance carrier. Right. And that insurance carrier has a duty to indemnify and defend that employer. And they are exercising both that duty to indemnify and that duty to defend by hiring me to be the defense counsel. Well, now I've got two clients. I've got the client that I represent, which is the employer, and I've got the client that's paying me, which happens to be an insurance company. The law recognizes, and I've found case law going back to the 1950s in this jurisdiction, recognizes that this is a very special and unique circumstance that really occurs uh, typically in the context of insurance defense litigation, right? Right. Uh, this is not something that happens in other contexts. You don't see attorneys representing two parties like this. Um, even in other circumstances where uh, one party is going to pay the legal costs of the other, the attorney is not representing both of those parties at the same time. Uh, the the retainer agreement would simply say, "I defend you, my client," and the guarantor or the payor is this other person or entity, right? That's you know typically done. But in the insurance defense context, uh, the insurance carrier is not simply a payor or a guarantor of payment. They are also a party to the case because they are uh, first party liable in this matter. So there are legion of court opinions and ethics opinions that state that when I represent both an insurance carrier and the employer that they insure, my first duty and my highest duty is to the employer directly. It's to the respondent directly. And this case law goes back to the 1950s um, and and 1960s and says, quote, when counsel, although paid by the casualty company, undertakes to represent the policyholder and files his notice of appearance, he owes to his client the assured an undeviating and single allegiance. His fealty embraces the requirement to produce in court all witnesses, fact and expert, who are available and necessary for the proper protection of the rights of his client. The canons of professional ethics make it pellucid that there are not two standards, one applying to counsel privately retained by the client and another to counsel paid by an insurance carrier. In other words, the case law and the opinions are very, very um, consistent in this area that the highest duty that the, ins- uh, the insurance defense attorney owes is to the insured themselves. Now, although they are the payer, the insurance company does have the right uh, to control the defense, but, of course, that is limited by their obligation to the insured. Defense counsel has the challenge of, uh, of exercising care to make sure that the insurance carrier is aware of what's going on in the workers' compensation case, to make sure that we're communicating with you, to uh, provide you with uh, as much opportunity to settle or compromise the case as possible and provide accurate counsel. But we also have to put the uh, rights and the um, exposures of the employer first. Again, there's case law that states that. In New Jersey, the workers' compensation insurance carrier has the absolute right to settle claims without the consent of the insured, unless that right is specifically reserved in the insurance contract. And this will happen where the insurance carrier wants to settle a matter, but the Employer does not, and the respondent will say, "Well, I don't want to settle it. You know, I want to send a message. I hate this employee. They're a bad person. You know, all these you know emotional reasons that have nothing to do uh, with your actual obligation under the law or their potential exposure. In that instance, the carrier has the right uh, to settle the case or decide to settle the case. In regards to the settlement of the claim, the insurance company can't just settle any case it wants at any value it wants. It has to disregard its own interests and place the interests of the insured first, which means this has to be an economically efficient and appropriate settlement for the insurance carrier to enter into it. Um, Another ethical issue that arises strictly for defense counsel are the issues that arise from litigation or legal billing guidelines. Uh, My clients often ask me to sign or act in agreement with legal litigation management guidelines, uh, which they issue because they're trying to contain runaway legal expenses. However, we have to be very careful that these legal management guidelines or litigation billing guidelines do not create impediments to the respondent attorney's ability to fully and adequately and vigorously defend the employer. Uh, there are ethical opinions that state that imposition of arbitrary budgets, uh, limitations on how many hours an attorney can work on a case, or impairment of the defense's ability to present witnesses, for example, documents, evidences, or experts, um, can be an ethical violation on the behalf of the attorney. So as the defense counsel who agrees to the litigation management guidelines, you have to be mindful that you're not agreeing to things that are going to impair your ability to vigorously, adequately, appropriately, and completely defend the employer. Um, now, typically in litigation management guidelines, in fact, everyone I've ever seen contains escape clauses. It says, you shall do this, um, you know, use this preferred vendor, um, you know, try not to engage in unnecessary discovery, you know, just some straightforward things that do actually increase legal efficiency. But I almost always see an escape clause that says something like, if any of these guidelines or requirements impair your ability to fully and adequately defend this case, uh, please confer with us so we can relax these guidelines. And in that way, I do not see any that are per se violative of my ethical duties to the insurers. Another issue that defense counsel face uh, is requests for litigation that exceeds or representation that exceeds the workers' compensation contract. This typically happens where we're defending an employer or a respondent in a workers' compensation case, and they start asking us questions about things that are unrelated to the workers' compensation case. And it often starts quite innocuously. It often starts with them asking me a question about termination, and they'll say, "Hey, this person um, violated a safety rule when they got injured. Can I terminate them?" And, you know, that's pretty innocuous and pretty straightforward. And then as the conversation progresses, they start asking questions that are further and further afield and questions that start to touch on things like employment practices or liability or terminations or, um, you know, civil rights claims that this claimant might have against them. And these are things that are clearly not countenanced, or clearly not within the workers' compensation contract. And I have to gently steer the employer back and say, look. Uh, you have an insurance carrier that's defending you and indemnifying you in these workers' compensation matters. But that workers' compensation contract doesn't go into these other things that you're now talking about. And for that reason, I can't counsel you about uh, your potential exposure under other laws, federal laws, laws against discrimination, wage and hour disputes, termination, separations, unemployment claims. Like all of those things uh, are something that are going to fall outside of that contract of insurance that you have. Um, we'll also see clients who want things like um, resignations and releases, which are completely obtainable in this jurisdiction. Although petitioners' attorneys really don't like them, uh, you could do them, I and mean, we've done them before. Uh, but where that is occurring in the insured context, there really should be a separate representation taking place. Otherwise, um, we can be, as defense counsel, stepping into an ethical issue. All right. Candor to the tribunal, we owe the same duty of honesty to the judge as the opposing party does, which means I can't conceal facts, I can't make false statements of facts, I can't hide case law that's adverse to my position, um, and I can't offer evidence that I know is false. In other words, I have an obligation to make sure I am not misleading the court, concealing relevant evidence or facts um, so that the judge can reach a fully formed opinion, right? So that's something that we have a duty to do. And again, this is not a issue that uh, typically would result in ethical violation because if there is a circumstance where I have to reveal adverse facts or law and I cannot um, resolve the ethical conflict, I will simply withdraw as counsel. And that's something we can do um, with the permission of our employers uh, or, and carriers. Um, the last thing uh, that I want to mention is that in, under the New Jersey workers' compensation rules, certifications and certain pleadings that are signed by your defense counsel are subject or considered sworn pleadings, and so therefore they are they are subject to penalties and specific penalties uh, where they are filed um, unnecessarily or inappropriately or inaccurately. And the judge may apportion fees, in fact penalize the employer at the close of a case where the respondent has engaged uh, in filing false affidavits, false certifications, false documents, or done things which unnecessarily prolonged uh, the defense of a case. Um, we also have an ethical duty to expedite litigation. That doesn't mean uh, that uh, we shouldn't be proceeding pursuant to the rules of court. It just means that we should be limiting the issues to not waste time. Uh, the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Court rules say that we have an obligation to limit the issues, uh, particularly discovery issues, and we must make a sincere effort to not waste time. So that's inscribed not in the rules of professional conduct, but in the actual workers' compensation court rules themselves. Uh, we're also not allowed to engage in frivolous litigation. Now, I have absolutely raised this against opposing parties where I've said, Look, you're pursuing this claim. There's no proof of this claim. You've got nothing. You've been, you know, uh, de- prosecuting this matter for a year. You've produced at this moment no medical records. This is purely frivolous at this moment. So, this again works both ways. But it also means that as defense counsel, we cannot be pursuing frivolous discovery requests uh, that do not yield any useful information in our cases. So, uh, that's a little bit of an overview of the relevant rules that apply in workers' compensation cases in New Jersey. And again, I want to focus on the rules that apply to both Petitioner's counsel and Defense counsel, and then look at the ways that Defense counsel have some unique rules that apply to them. All right, I'm hoping there are lots of great questions this morning, uh, sorry, this afternoon for me to answer. Um, let's take a look here. I don't see any questions popping up, which is impossible. We have a lot of attendees, and um, this is—I thought this was a fun topic, um, but so far I still don't see any questions popping up, uh, which is a shame because, again, this is one of those areas where um, you know you can really uh, have to uh, completely and fully to uh, to defend an employer. You sometimes have to raise ethical grievances against opposing counsel. The areas where I've had to file grievances against opposing counsel have been largely uh, surrounding settlements. The first one is where I am making settlement offers in a good faith attempt to try to compromise, resolve and close a case. And opposing counsel is either not responding at all to my settlement offers or says to me, admits to me, I'm not even presenting this to my client. I'm not even giving them this piece of information. I think the case is worth one hundred thousand dollars. You made an offer of sixty thousand dollars. I'm not even presenting this offer. And I'll have to threaten them. And I'll say, look, well, you're just admitting to me an ethical violation of one of the rules. You have to do that. Right. So that's number one. And the second context that I see this um, being very important for us uh, is in the context of um, when we are uh, talking about settlement with opposing counsel. And I find out that they are trying to directly either involve the employer in the settlement discussion or they're trying to go around us and talk directly to the insurance carrier. Uh, they will often do this because they think, oh, uh, I can go around Greg or I can go around Greg's attorneys and I can try to negotiate the settlement in this case myself. That's absolutely inappropriate. And we should raise attorney grievances where you discover that's been happening. So uh, those are just some of the practical ways that this actually applies in our day to day practice. All right. So I was talking a little bit there about my personal experience, but as I see here, um No questions have popped up, so I'm imagining that people are pretty much have this topic understood and are comfortable with it. Um, If you think of any questions about this and you want to raise them with me, please feel free to call me or contact me. I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving last week, and I'll see you next month as we uh, talk about our next topic. So have a great week, everybody. Talk to you soon.